Whether you're working on a personal project or managing enterprise infrastructure, you deserve simple, affordable, and accessible cloud computing solutions that allow you to take your project to the next level. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and develop, deploy, and scale your modern applications faster and easier. Get started on Linode today with $100 in free credit for listeners of Greater Than Code. You can find all of the details at linode.com slash greater than code. Linode has 11 global data centers and provides 24-7-365 human support with no tiers or handoffs regardless of your plan size. In addition to shared and dedicated compute instances, you can use your $100 in credit on S3-compatible object storage, managed Kubernetes, and more. Visit linode.com slash greater than code and click on the Create Free Account button to get started. Welcome to episode 220 of Greater Than Code. I'm your co-host, Rain Hendricks, and I'm here with my friend, Mondo Escamilla. Thanks, Rain. I am here with uh, our friend, Josh Thompson, who's also our guest today. Josh Thompson writes words for people and computers. Before getting into software development, he worked in climbing gyms and customer support, flash success, and inbound BDB SaaS sales. He likes how he gets to use all of his prior experience in the teams he works with and the problems that he solves. In the words of a former co-worker, Josh brings a rare mix of skills and dispositions to the problems that he solves. Welcome to the podcast, Josh. Thank you so much for having me. Right on. Well, we like to start off the podcast with asking every guest the same question, and I think you might know what that is already, but why don't you tell us what your superpower is and how you acquired it? Yeah, it's a common superpower, I think, for many guests that I've heard on the show. It's around teaching and learning. I thought about it, and my answer was... I can teach nearly anything I know to almost anyone. The way I got it, well, so basically I can learn something, it'll take me, I'm not actually that fast of a learner, as obsessed as I am with learning. But then once I learn something well, I can turn around and teach it to someone else in a lot less time than it took me to learn that given thing. And there'll be often a lot less pain and suffering and difficulty (laughs) along the way for that other person. The way I kind of started seeing the shape of this skill and then honing it was I worked at a large climbing gym on the East Coast of the United States in maybe 2011, 2012, and really enjoyed all the work that I got to do there. And I did a lot of teaching. And one of the favorite things that I got to teach was there's this advanced lead climbing course that we taught, which um, helps people who are rock climbing and trying to do this certain kind of rock climbing, which sometimes involves long falls. And it can be dangerous and people can be hurt. And there's, as people get into rock climbing and try to get better at this, they find that their fear, which is a very reasonable fear, holds them back more and more and more as they are trying to progress into harder levels. And a lot of the fun of rock climbing is trying hard things. And so it's very reasonable to have failures and to fall and all of that. The long story short, I ended up rebuilding the course and started with leading with fear remediation and by way of building trust and confidence and like safety systems. And then once that had been really like carefully explained and everyone was feeling on board and kind of like checking in with everybody, then moving on to the stuff that they tended to be more scared of and had incredible success. Like I was able to in one or two sessions, take people who they'd been crippled by fear for years and have them climbing like with way more fun, much less danger 
less risk and their their actual like climbing skills would skyrocket in just like a, a week or two as they were dealing with that fear. So that's when I started looking at like, oh, taking knowledge, squeezing it into a smaller and less painful package and then handing it off. And obviously that goes to many different skills like related to software and many other things. But that's where I got my start. You, you send us a photo and it looks like in that photo, you're a few, a few hundred feet up a wall. Is that, which one is that? Yeah, that was, it's one of my favorite photos. It's because of the, the context in which it was taken. I was with a very dear friend and we were probably 300 feet off the ground in the Shawnagunks, New York. Uh, we'd gone out for a morning climbing session and it was just a delightful day with a good friend and a lot of that like fear management and just having fun, but doing safe things, but also doing things like, you know, when you're hundreds of feet off the ground, like things could go wrong. And, you know, the outcomes are more severe than when you're lying in your bed, but it can be done almost as safely as like going to bed. So yes, that, that was a really wonderful route in New York state. So I've got a question for you. It's not on the list of things we were going to talk about, but I'm really interested because I've been studying safety science for some years now. And that's usually studied in the context of, you know, factories and, and hospitals and planes, trains, automobiles, you know, things like that. Uh, so the question is, how do you stay safe as a rock climber? That is such a good question. And safety science is really interesting to me as well. Every year, I'll segue into this, every year, the American Alpine Club, which is kind of the guiding body of American alpinism, as you might imagine, releases an accident report. And it's always a thick journal. And it's a number of stories. Sometimes it's multiple pages and a lot of details. Sometimes it's just a paragraph or two about a variety of accidents. Sometimes it's just close calls and nothing injurious happened to the party. Sometimes it's much worse and there's a number of like fatalities and very real accidents. And a common thread, I consider it not to be like light or pleasant reading, but very important reading for the same reason that studying like safety science isn't necessarily pleasant when you're reading about plane crashes and trains, derailments and things like that. But it tends to be the thread. So to answer, how do you stay safe in rock climbing is build the baseline skills because most accidents happen to people that are new to the field and then very experienced in the field. And the accident rate goes down dramatically once people are smart enough to not make beginner mistakes, but not so experienced that they're lazy or they're like, ah, whatever, it's not going to happen to me. So now I've been climbing for probably 15 years. So I consider myself to be kind of my risk is going back up and that I get I could get lazy and think like, oh, this is easy or I've done this before. Nothing bad can happen. And there's a number of famous accidents that have happened just like that. Like someone forgets to do something very basic and then like a world class rock climber dies and everyone is just like, oh, it was so preventable. So intuitions for lack of a better word, is once you've built a baseline of skill, you should be very sensitive to intuitions. And when you're doing something that like, ah, uh, doesn't quite feel right, but you can usually justify it into like that not being a problem. But then if circumstances compound and you face another one of those of like, well, the weather's changed. I didn't pack an extra layer. Oh, I'm climbing on someone else's rope. And did they mention that they cut the ends or not? Or that they like trimmed them or not? Like, you should listen to those little kinds of things because they compound and can rapidly turn into something that you can't easily extricate yourself from. So I was once on a day trip up Long's Peak. There's a very tall piece of rock on the back of Long's Peak in Colorado. It's the highest elevation alpine climbing. And I was with a friend who is 10 times the rock climber I will ever be. And I, long story short, we had finished like a very difficult portion of the climbing and we're about to get to the part that he was really excited about. And I said, I'm sorry, Nathan, like, we got to go home. I feel like I've exceeded my margin. And 
it's a good day. Like we're doing fine, but we've drunk more of our water. This has been harder than I expected. And there's a history of sometimes him being so strong that he doesn't know that other people can't just effortlessly keep up with him. And I didn't want to find us in a spot where like bad things could happen. So I intuitively canceled the trip, even though nothing bad happened. I don't have a, re- not canceled the trip, but like caused us to go back down. So that's a very long way. There, there's as many ways to stay safe as there are ways to be injured. But I recommend that people listen to their intuitions. I think when, when most people think of rock climbing accidents, they think of like falling off the end of the rope while repelling or protection that fails or anchors that fail. But correct me if I'm wrong, but the most common cause of rock climbing injury is roped falls, is normal falls. Yeah, it depends. So it's kind of the layer of analysis because there's like soft tissue issues like spraining an injury or like a very common injury is straining a very small tendon in the finger, which if you were like, I was out rock climbing and I got injured, everyone's like, what happened? And you're like, I strained my finger. Like no one, (laughs) no one expects that to be the injury, but that kind of thing is very common. And if you were to just like lump up all of the incidents in climbing that could count as injuries. It's usually soft tissue kinds of things, muscular strains, that kind of thing. And those can happen when falling. So there's broadly two different domains of rock climbing. There's bouldering where you're not using a rope. And when you fall, you usually have spotters and you land on crash pads. And that can be like a two inch fall. I'm a very timid boulderer. So my favorite kind of bouldering is where like my butt is dragging along the ground. And if I fall, like I fall about that far, like nothing. I love it. I've got other friends that are extremely, they're like, oh, I love to climb 20 feet off the ground because it's invigorating. And I'm like, I would wet myself. So I don't do that. But then yeah, with roped falls, Specifically lead climbing, usually, you know what, I I don't know what the, by volume, what the most common form of injury is, because you tend to segregate into like significant injury and then all the little stuff that, for instance, golf has a higher injury rate per thousand participant hours than rock climbing. But most of them are from the, like, it's not hitting someone with a golf club or hitting them with a golf ball. It's the same kind of like muscular, like skeletal injury. The thing that I, I think is really interesting about this is that the way it's categorized in these incident reports and the statistics is routine roped fall because it's just a normal oh. part of climbing. Yeah, then that that could be it because falling is extreme. That's a really good point of falling being routine. And with sport climbing or trad, there's certain kinds of climbing where like you're not supposed to fall in certain situations. And so that would if you fell there, it wouldn't be that surprising that maybe there'd be unpleasant outcomes. But with like modern sport climbing which is a climbing gym if you go to a climbing gym all you're doing is sport climbing or top roping which is much safer and that kind of injury is this is exactly what i taught about so we're getting dangerously close to something i could lecture on for hours or like talk with and have taught many people because it's a very near and dear topic to my heart that when someone falls on a wall say they're five feet above their last piece of protection they fall five feet and now there's five feet of slack so they fall another five feet and then the rope starts pulling tight so it's very common to get like 15 to 20 foot falls when you're outside or inside and if the belayer does not do their job really well it's possible that the falling climber has an unpleasant degree of force exerted upon their body when the fall is all said and done and injuries can come from there i yeah like sprained ankles sprained wrists if you don't have time to orient your body in space correctly. So yeah, that's you're, a, you're leading, you need slack in the rope at certain times. Yeah. The time that you need slack in the rope is when you're furthest <laughs> from your previous protection. Cause that's when you're putting in the next protection. Yes. So if you fall at that point, you're in for a ride. Yes. 
incidentally, that's a, if you measure, if you could put like a force measuring device on like the top piece of protection, long falls tend to have surprisingly low maximum forces on them because the rope acts as a bungee cord. It stretches a couple percentage points, maybe 10%. And then as you're falling faster, the belayer, if they're doing their job correctly, they should, for lack of a better word, go with the fall. So they kind of you know, there's situations where you wouldn't. So everything in rock climbing has giant asterisks every time you make a blanket statement. But all else equal, you'd want the belayer to like kind of step into the wall and maybe hop up the wall with the falling climber. And that makes for a very like pleasant deceleration for the falling climber. But and then this is where it's really important to process fear and anxiety for both parties when they're climbing, because you might if you watch someone rock climbing, you're like, wow, they might be really scared. Like, that's very impressive. If their belayer is scared for them, the belayer is so much more likely to handle a fall wrongly and then project into the universe their fear and then make it true. Make their fears justified by fail. Because when someone is falling, if you're a belayer and you're scared, like you you tighten up. Sometimes you take slack out of the system. You might even try to like walk backwards because it can take a while for someone to finish falling. And if you're like, oh my gosh, they're still, they're still falling. They're still falling. This is terrible. But all of that happens in a, like a split second. It's a reflex level response. And so if you fight it, you can make their fall dangerous. So that's why when trying to be safe, there's actually elements of just like, how are we feeling right now? Like, are you feeling like kind of check in with your body? Do you feel like tense? Do you feel anxious? Like, if so, let's like, let's keep working on that. And you can safely give people exercises to like train the correct responses in a certain situation. And then weight differences change everything. If someone is belaying for someone that's much lighter than them or much heavier, that changes all everything. Yeah, that that's probably where most injuries do come, like sprained ankles and sprained wrists. The part of this that interests me especially is that one of the lessons of safety science is that accidents are the result of normal work. So the inherent variability in normal work is what produces accidents. Yes. Yeah. When I was at my last job, I worked on a, uh, like a DevOps team, right? A bunch of operators doing stuff. And one of the things that uh, our boss like really drilled into us was that we would spend all day typing in commands that could have disastrous outcomes, right? If they were at the wrong command, issued against the wrong environment, were typoed. And so part of the work is to try and build in whatever kind of guardrails you have in the systems to keep those worst case scenarios from happening by accident. Because another part of the work, right, is to kind of be okay with that as a potential outcome because nobody's perfect. And if you're running a couple hundred commands a day, say, or over a week or a month or a year, right, to expect every one of those to be 100% correct is something that you can't expect anyone. You can't, can't expect that of anyone. And I really like that idea ring of like accidents happening as a course of normal work. You cannot expect perfection all the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. You, if your environment requires perfection, you're probably more likely to get imperfection. I perform worse when I'm anxious. So Mm-hmm. Uh, when working, I, I, if I'm like on a production environment and doing anything that has like, I get anxious and I, I would like ask someone to look over my shoulder of like, Hey, can yep. you make sure that we're like doing the right things to this production database or we're not on production. Cause, and you know, there's lots of different ways to like mitigate individual specific harms. Have you, 
both, I don't know how famous this is. It's a, it's a very short paid paper. It's two pages or, or it's just a couple of pages called how complex systems fail. It's 18 paragraphs of bullet pointed. So, so for instance, the first one is, I just pulled it up cause I, I love this paper. It's a complex systems are intrinsically hazardous systems. Point number two is complex systems are heavily and successfully defended against failure. Point three, catastrophe requires multiple failures. Single point failures are not enough. Point number five is complex systems run in degraded mode. You're almost never working with your system in the like, you know, whatever the salesperson sold it to you as like, it's rarely in that environment. It's duct tape and spit balls, like stringing the whole thing along. And <laughs> point number six, catastrophe is always just around the corner. <laughs> and then... This, I think, is important both from a and this is why I like the American Alpine Club, like accident reports, because I think they're almost identical. Like people can die when software goes wrong and people can die when not software goes wrong. So there's no artificial distinction between those those systems. But at point number seven says post accident attribution to a root cause is fundamentally wrong. There's almost never a root cause of a failure. It's a complex inner related thing. Yeah. You know, the, the person that usually dealt with this was homesick because of whatever. And so now the like new person that just started was following the instructions and the instructions didn't say that except for in this like exceptional situation, do this other thing. So don't blame you the new guy. Things that seem like they have obvious causes, like like a protection failure. Well, why did they put that protection there? Why did they th- why did were they willing to take that risk at that time? And so yep. on. Yeah. I And I think that this has a lot of value. So this is some of the other things that I care a lot about is the transfer of knowledge from experts to non-experts, because I'm not an expert in most domains that I, you spend enough time in something and then you can spend time with smarter and smarter people there. And you're like, oh, I'm surrounded by people that have spent like decades in this field and I'll never be like that. And that's okay. Like there's nothing, you know, it's not a moral judgment. It's just a factual judgment, but there's something that, so I'm an expert in some domains, usually like I'm more of an expert in rock climbing than I am in software because I have a lot more time in rock climbing than software. And whenever I'm like teaching or trying to impart knowledge, I try to help the person that I'm teaching understand that like even experts operate in like with vast uncertainty in almost all, not all situations, but like we're just making intuitive judgments as we go along. And rather than like impart rules, I really like to impart like systems of reasoning For instance, saying like, if something feels uncomfortable, you should pay really close attention to that and understand why. Like maybe you keep doing the thing that you're planning on, but if you feel this discomfort, you should think about it and understand that in group dynamics, it's scary to tell the whole group that you think something bad is might be coming. But like, that's actually a really noble and bold thing to say, like, I would like to plant a flag in this issue and let it be known. And I want us to talk about that we might be moving down a like a dangerous path. And novices have a lot of value to bring there because they're more perceptive to like the environmental hazards than maybe someone that's been operating it in it all the time. And, you know, maybe then the expert can alleviate their concerns and say, oh, like we're working in a nuclear power plant. Of course, it just kind of feels scary everywhere. But here's the here's the things that we can do to make it safe. Or they're like, oh, but like in safety systems and safety science, I'm sure so many accidents. I haven't looked at it recently, but. Accidents happen when experts get lazy and then they override the concerns of the people underneath them. And then like catastrophic outcomes ensue that certain people did see coming, but were like squashed. The interesting thing about that is that in a lot of other situations, that decision might have been fine. What you often find if you investigate an incident is that a hundred of the things that happened that were related to the incident 
happen hundreds of times without causing incident. So even, you know, if you find out that a piece of code wasn't tested enough, right? You can find hundreds of pieces of code that aren't tested enough that have never caused an incident. So clearly that's not a sufficient explanation for why this one. Ah, yeah. That's why I feel like, um, like a huge value add that the people that have the like political power in an organization, if they can use it to try to like remove pressure from individual accidents and more like put pressure on like systemic solutions. Like if you do a deploy, <laughs> I've done this, did a deploy, ran a migration because of the ordering of two lines, it ended up, we dropped an index, we we're trying to re-index a column to like force uniqueness. And because it was a very busy table with a lot of activity, the migration failed for not important reasons. And it took us a while to figure out what was going on. And then eventually, like, it was fine. It was background workers. So all the data was still there. It wasn't actually that big of a thing, but it was like this, like, it was stressful for a couple of hours. And we we're trying to see, like, why is this migration that took three minutes to run the first time? Why is it taking an hour to run the second time? And it's because we were trying to do a very large scan on a non-indexed column because we dropped the column. So the solution was rename the index, then do the thing. And if you have to run it twice, whatever, that's fine. It becomes a little more idempotent. And then once the new uniqueness constraint index is successfully in there, then you proceed to the step where you drop the index. So that's a hard-earned piece of knowledge that I'll never make that mistake again. But rather than be like, Josh, why did you do it wrong? Or me like trying to preemptively like lay myself on the altar because I don't I would rather like talk about my own inadequacies rather than have someone else like accuse me of an inadequacy. Rather than like, you know, that individual failure being the focal point, stepping back and being like, well, this is why we have data backups. Are we confident in our backups? If not, let's like once a month for until we're confident, like let's practice dropping a table and making sure that we can like bring it back from our backups. Let's let's get a run book. If we had lost data, I didn't know where to go to start bringing it back because it was like arcane knowledge in someone's like head. And if they were out for the day, we would have been out of luck. The individual failure doesn't matter, but the system that allows you to recover from a failure should be resilient broadly. Yeah, so like, application performance monitoring. If like this code went out without tests and then it failed, like, okay, there's probably another lens of analysis that we'd be a little more rigorous with that will like make it safer. And then that has benefits to the company because you can start bringing on less and less experienced people and trust you can give them a safer environment to do their work in rather than like micromanaging them and feeling like they're going to torture your code base or your, your data or your customers with a small misstep. Like Mondo running hundreds of commands a day, that's a terror. Like I would be just saying that caused me anxiety because I'd be afraid of doing something. But if you're like, okay, here's how we, like before we touch the data, there's always a backup. Watch, I can like drop it, like drop table, like users, and it'll come back automatically with only 30 seconds of data loss. That, that makes that a safe environment, even though in my job, someone running a bunch of commands on like production data would have people would have been like what are you doing like this does not seem like the right way to do it but it's because if it's safe it's it's safe yeah going back to what you were saying a little earlier josh how the the desire to go in and find you know like do a root cause analysis of an issue right is uh, is often misguided due to like this complex interleaving of like disparate sometimes systems one of the worst weeks at my at my my previous job were uh, was around this series of outages that we had, and they were temporary, and they were more or less untraceable. All of a sudden, I kind of out of nowhere, alarms start going off. You know, everything everything from you know uh, data dog alerts from backend processing systems to 
front-end requests either taking too long, timing out, failing, seemingly from everywhere, things start going haywire uh, in this one area of our product. And uh, one of the guys on my team tracked it down to one of our Cassandra clusters having a problem. And this outage would last for three to four minutes and then resolve itself. And so we tracked it down to Cassandra. We saw the dashboards and our alerts from Cassandra you know, firing, telling us that, you know, either load was high or memory usage was high. You know, there was obviously something going on with Cassandra. But as we looked at all the other systems, none of them were increasing any load. It didn't seem as though any queries had changed. Yeah, we're like digging into like recent commits on various areas of the application, right? To see what could have possibly happened. And it happened over the course of several days, yeah, very intermittently, like maybe once or twice a day. And uh, as we're digging through, I happened to notice that the, all this was in AWS, right? So the security group, the policy that allowed uh, network connections to the Cassandra cluster was open to our developer VPN IP range, which meant like anyone in the engineering team could connect to the Cassandra cluster, right? Which can be useful, especially for our team, right? So that the operators could connect in without having to bounce uh, off of a bastion host or jump host or whatever, right? You connect directly from your laptop to the Cassandra cluster and get in. And so on a whim, kind of following some intuition that I wasn't completely aware of at the time, I cut off that access and it took about a day and a half for an engineer to come into our Slack room and be like, Hey, I'm trying to connect to this Cassandra cluster. Uh, and I can't, and I could yesterday. And so as we dug into it, this developer had been running these huge queries on the production Cassandra cluster, completely unaware that what he was doing was in fact bringing down production. And so we fixed the glitch by cutting off access, but that didn't address all of the other systemic issues in the organization that, you know, got us to the point where we had a senior engineer who didn't really understand uh, what they were doing with a production environment. And they didn't understand what running these kinds of queries, what kind of impact it had. They didn't have visibility into the pain and suffering that my team was having, right? Because the way that the organization had set up production responsibilities kept it solely or squarely on my team's shoulders and didn't really involve the rest of engineering. So if we had just stopped, I guess, at that root cause, right? The root cause is developer is connecting to a cluster. And if we had labeled that as the root cause, then we wouldn't have seen all of these other issues and wouldn't have given us the ammunition isn't the right word, but the ammunition required to go to engineering managers, directors of engineering, right? And say, this is, this is why other people need to be involved, right? This is why it's important to invest in training, even for people who, who got hired, you know, this guy, he's a fantastic engineer, right? He's been in the industry building products, right, for 15 years. He's never worked with Cassandra in his life until he started working there, right? So, of course, he's not going to know. And so, all of this is to say, like, we, having an environment where people are willing to not force 
not a scapegoat, right? But not, not not force there to be like some line item in a Jira ticket somewhere that says this is why this outage happened, and are willing to kind of do the more nebulous work of tracing around through. Like, you'll never get it all, right? But it's really the only way to address the real kind of issues that that could cause larger outages or larger larger negative outcomes, right? Yeah, it's, I feel like that that exact story or some very similar version of that story probably happens every day in yeah. companies around the world because, you know, it's not incompetence at anyone's level. It's that lack of like expertise is usually just a collection of prior experiences that we pattern match on top of. And then because you said off of a whim, you decided to revoke access to the like direct access to these Cassandra clusters from yeah. a certain range of IP addresses. Yeah, I, I had I had no evidence right. that we were getting the trying to go through like the, the Cassandra logs to to track you know every query that was coming in right wasn't yeah. getting us really anywhere right. Yep. But yeah, I, I'm sure something similar to this has happened enough times in my you know career right. But I was like, well, let's let's just see. Yeah. And that reminds me this how complex systems fail is so helpful. They the and two other points are um, human operators have dual roles as producers and as defenders against failure. Like this developer would not have induced any failure if he wasn't trying to build a feature, resolve something in the course of doing his job. He's like, oh, it's um, it's useful for me to be able to connect directly to Cassandra clusters just to see what's going on. Like our team would read. We had read-only access to production data that we'd very carefully segment out, but we often used production data, production logs, all that stuff to like understand, especially because the app was built by folks who were not no longer on the team. So I parachuted in with kind of low context and had to just do a lot of like like step-by-step tracing of things to see what the heck was happening when someone yeah. you know clicks this button in the application. But And then the next point on this paper is all practitioner actions are gambles. You gambled on that. It was a pretty good gamble, but you yeah. were like, we'll just turn, it's not going to hurt anything. Worst case scenario, mm-hmm. if it does break something, we'll let the fact that someone will bring it to us be indicative of something being broken. My wife and I just moved into a house. I had an outlet in the kitchen that wasn't working. So I got like a $3 like outlet tester and plugged it in, also confirmed it wasn't working. And then it has like, you know, the little GFCI outlets where you press the button and it like triggers neither outlet on both side, which all had the GFCI safety stuff, were triggering when you pressed the test button or when you used the like outlet tester feature that was supposed to trigger. So I was like, great, I have oh, a bunch of like dangerous outlets because they're predicting, they're they're telegraphing a level of safety that they're then not uh, matching. I would rather it just not say anything about GFCI than say like GFCI and not work. Anyway, so for a bunch of reasons, I took the outlets out and it's just this rat's nest of cabling underneath. Like there was hot power going to the outlet, but something in either the outlet was broken or the cable wasn't connected right. So I I just like took it all out and then like capped off all the connections and then turned the power back on to see like what doesn't have power. And I still have two cords going into this box that I don't know what they powered in the house. I haven't been able to find anything that doesn't have power. Like... I was like, cool, I'll, I'll just take it off, turn the power back on and then go find like, you know, because the outlet box was all unlabeled because it's a house from the 50s. Yep. So I was like, cool, this powers the fridge, this powers the garage outlets. And I still have four that I have no idea what they power. And I was so sure that something was going to break, but it hasn't broken, which is more concerning than if it broke <laughs> and didn't. So if you're like, oh, we have all this like 
IP traffic coming from our developers. So I'll just turn it off. And then, you know, tomorrow, one of them will ask me what's going on. If none of them reached out, that would be more concerning because you're oh, like, yeah. where is this traffic coming from? Like, who? why are people connecting? Like, so everything is gambles. And then if like your CTO or the CEO is looking to, you know, because they have to like write a public statement about why they're outages and they want to be like, this is the person and we've sacrificed them to the gods of public opinion to make sure this will never happen again. To just say like, just happened, but we've like put some remediation in place. Like maybe it's an opportunity for, I wish our DevOps team at the last company that I was at, I would have loved for them to build little like obstacle courses or tutorials or anything that just showed some of their day-to-day because I had no insight into it. And since we all work remotely, I was never like looking over their shoulder. So that when that kind of like knowledge gap is exposed, it's such a good opportunity to one, be like, okay, there's a knowledge gap. How do we fill it from both directions? Maybe the problem that that developer was trying to solve has a much more elegant solution that once you understand the problem he's trying to solve, you can be like, here, we'll like give you this sandbox environment you can play with. Go crazy. Like you can, you can under, you'll understand Cassandra better and you won't have production implications if you run this crazy query. I see failure as an opportunity. And as long as it doesn't cost a lot of money, if it does even cost a lot of money, that's an expensive opportunity to throw away. Like if you induce an outage, and then you just fire the person, chances are good they were never going to make that mistake again. So oh, yeah. like, you just wasted that expensive like learning thing. One of the things that uh, Richard Cook, who wrote How Complex Systems Fail, loves to say is incidents are a forced investment in learning. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. And it's one of the things that I, one of the main takeaways uh, that I had from my last job was we, I wouldn't say that we celebrated when someone on the team made a mistake and caused an outage. But our, our boss would do one of two things. If it happened before lunch, then he would, at lunch, he would order us in uh, meatball subs, right? And we would all sit, like, as a team, right? it's, you know, pre-COVID, right? We'd all sit as a team at lunch and not talk about what happened, but just eat. We never got those meatball subs unless someone had broken something. And it, was, it wasn't a celebration of, <laughs> of breaking it right, but it was more of a, like, this is something that just happens. It's okay that it happened if it means that it's never going to happen again, or at least that the team is aware that this is what causes things to happen. And now we can, like Rain said, right? It's a it's a forced learning investment. You know, yeah. if it happened after lunch, then uh, we'd go like to the bar around the corner, right, and have a beer before we went home for the same reasons. Like, yeah, this is this is part of the job because this stuff happens through the course of just normal work. It's not like, you know, kind of Josh, what you were saying earlier, right? It's not like someone wakes up one day and comes into work and is like, today's the day I'm going to bring down production, right? You know, it's like, no, you're trying to get your job done. You're trying to be productive. You're trying to contribute to the team and to the company and then stuff happens. You need to make the assumption that people are trying to do a good job if you want to be able to learn from what happened. Absolutely. Yeah. Then I like that tradition. You're right. It's not, it wasn't a celebration, but it's like a a paying tribute or homage to the event and like having a healing, a healing, like a ritual almost around the thing. And so imagine how healthy that feels to some, like the newest member of the team, maybe just getting into the industry, seeing other people, having this happen of like, oh, so-and-so who I thought like knew everything there is to know about the system made a mistake and like, they're okay. As a team, we're like kind of lifting them up and saying like, you know, you're still welcome here. We're okay. It's really like, 
for lack of a better word, healing. So I got into software by way of the Turing School, which is in Denver, strongly endorse it. And so I, I'm now a couple of years out. I graduated in 2017. So my, I have a couple of years of experience, but definitely not a lot in the grand scheme of things. And I always stay close to people that are like also pretty new to the industry. And the number of times I've heard very new people, sometimes just a couple of weeks or months into their first job, like the stories that they're relaying, they're like feeling this deep sense of shame over like an error that they made or like once they lost a bunch of time to a syntax error in like a CSS file because they didn't know that, you know, they read it a bunch of different times and surprise, surprise, the human eye is not well tuned to find the lack of a parentheses or the lack <laughs> of a quotation mark or like, oh, you used a single quote there and a double quote there and it's 500 lines in between. Like it's, ludicrous to assume that someone would ever even be able to like see that. So what they then learned, I was like, oh, did you like use a linter? Or like when, <laughs> actually what I really said was before your manager started like chewing you out for that, did they tell you that there's tools for this kind of thing that are called like, like you can just, w, like I think it's W3 schools or something. Like there's like a bunch of different options. You just paste in your CSS and it's like, oh, you have unbalanced quotation marks and then you can go find it. And he's like, oh no, they just said that this is why we need to be careful. And I was like, no, this isn't why we need to be careful. This is no. why we need to like leverage the expertise of experts to like create a safer environment. And now this person is going to forever be afraid of making a small mistake like that because they were shamed for it when it happened. Yeah, I don't I don't know how to say this in a better way, but one thing that I always took into, you know, our discussions post like postmortem type discussions over instance, right? What I always tried to instill on the team was that the answer is never be better at your job. The answer, the answer is never, like you said, like be more careful because we're not going to be like, we're all, we're all, we're all human beings. Maybe you, you didn't get a good night's sleep last night for any number of uh, reasonable or unreasonable reasons. Maybe, maybe you are going through a particularly rough time personally, but if you're not ever given that room or that space, for it to be okay to make mistakes. And if people aren't coming in it with, assuming you are trying your best, then you're going to miss out on those opportunities for learning and growth. Like, you know, Josh, so, you know, <laughs> you can imagine someone in the background, right? Is like, oh yeah, I use, I use this linter integrated with Visual Studio Code to help me solve these problems, right? Or if you're on a team where you can go and ask and you feel emotionally safe enough to ask someone, hey, can you help me with this rather than beating your head against it for 12 hours or whatever, right? Uh, I had someone that I used to work with who invariably she would have a, you know, a problem that she spent an hour looking at, right? And then she asked me to take a look at it and I would look at it and be like that, right? Like, oh, you miss a, you know, miss a semicolon here, right? Or whatever. And she would ask, how did you do that? And I was like, I've, like, I've wasted 10,000 hours in my career on miss, <laughs> missing semicolons, you know? So, like, at this point, my eyes are trained to look for that stuff, right? But it's, it's taken me 15 years to do that. I can't expect you, who's been doing this for a month, to do that, right? In 15 years, if you come with me, you know, and I find the semicolon before you do, right? Like, I'll, I'll make a little joke about it, right? <laughs> but for now, like, yeah, you, use this tool. Yeah. Like you've got 15 years of experience of making, not making the same error, of course, but like making a, if you're like me, many similar errors from a shocking degree of different directions where you're like, <laughs> dang it. I thought I had like 
pattern match successfully on that, but here's this like weird little edge case that when it's been a full moon and I'm wearing a blue shirt and I like look cross-eyed at the computer, whatever. But yeah, like the hard-earned lessons, I think this is also, you took this knowledge and squeezed it down to this tiny little piece of time and passed it off. And you also said like, you kind of gave a painless way of the same painful lesson of like, I've spent a lot of hours on this or I've taken down production or I've done this thing. And so you can use words to describe a painful situation that lands with an emotional weight on the person that hears it. And then they can learn and like stand on your shoulders for lack of a better word of like not having to make the same mistake, but still getting to learn some of the same kind of knowledge. And I think that's where like real learning and knowledge transfer happens. There's this guy named Cedric Chin. I'll, send you all a link to this afterwards. He has a series on tacit knowledge and he argues that tacit knowledge is um, knowledge that cannot be captured through words alone. And so much of what experts do when you actually sit down and watch an expert at a thing, and he's, he's a software developer. And so he relays a story where he had this big class that he's trying to work on and he showed it to a coworker and the coworker was like, that's going to be your problem. You should fix that. And he was like, I've spent a week on this. There's hundreds of lines of code. Like, how did you just do that? How did you digest this whole thing? And the coworker's like, I don't know. It just felt right. Want to go get lunch? And Cedric was like, no, no, no. Like, I don't want to know what just happened here. So now, like, you know, you can kind of scaffold an understanding. So hopefully the expert will be able to be like, ah, I'm like making intuitive judgments and I'm pattern matching and I'm doing all of these things. And then kind of pass that off to the person rather than just say like, oh, I just know. Now you can skill up the the knowledge of the less experienced people on the team so quickly just by trying to find those opportunities where there's these gaps in knowledge that aren't easily explainable and trying to like pour into that. So I think about that whenever an expert does something, I just wish they would record their screen and then like I could watch them do it after the fact or even like ask them like, how did you do that? Why are you looking at that directory? Why did you look up that like where this method is being called in this library? Like, why did you do that? Because so much like years and years of painful experience gets squeeze down into just this set of actions that this person takes. And it's much easier for me as an inexperienced person to be like, okay, in general, when I'm doing this, I'm going to control F, like I'm going to grep the entire repo before renaming this variable to make sure it's not used somewhere else. That's a painful lesson to learn the hard way, pretty easy to learn an easy way. Yeah. So I, I feel like, and I, I think about that, there's always like this desire for intermediate or senior developers. And I've been working for a couple of years and I'm out of the like junior territory. So now I can be like, oh, like it's easy to get a job. But there's so many people that are trying to get their first job that are struggling, struggling, struggling to get the job. And I wish I could help maybe if the listeners to this find themselves in their spot, rather than trying to find better talent, try to find a, like build a better system that allows you to like take in just normal people and build them into the talent that you want them to be. Spend an extra month educating them and take that person that's just ready to walk in and join your team rather than being like, oh, we wish they had more years of experience with Cassandra. You could be like, oh, we have a really good, like our Cassandra experts have built like this bespoke in-house resource that people that are coming into our company both learn how we use Cassandra, our business logic of why we use it this way, and the weird little idiosyncrasies because like we haven't upgraded this tool in forever and it's just sucks. Like if, if you've got someone that's like at the bleeding edge of technologies, they can never, I mean, they, they're not as useful dealing with like legacy older stuff that gets barnacles and like scar tissue from just being used in the real world for a long time. But that's also like, that's where the, it's being used for so long because it's been delivering so much value for so long. So yeah, I, I feel like teams could solve their hiring problems by working on training, saying like, we're going to take the average, like 
empathetic, well-intentioned person who has a little bit of domain knowledge, and we can make them really good at, in a reasonable time frame. Now you can hire anybody. And your, your retention goes up, and you're like, good ideas coming from within the team go up and you can promote from within like all the, it solves it's this like it drags behind all of these other pleasant like secondary effects i used to joke uh at my uh last company that I, sh I should just change the job rec that i had online for adding operators to the team i wanted to change it to someone who is kind someone who is empathetic and someone who can read like if you have those, if you have like the, those three abilities, the team is set up in a way that uh, it's welcoming enough, and it's with you know everyone on the team was willing to stop what they were doing and help show someone how to do something. Right, the team had built up a nice set of documentation, a nice set of runbooks, a nice set of kind of plays. There were guardrails set up around places to where it wasn't impossible to shoot yourself in the foot, but you had to try real hard. And so it was a really, really good environment for, like you were saying, Josh, kind of people almost off the street. And Oh, and the, the other one was like, wants to do this work. They, you know, if you want to be an operator or you want to be a software developer. And, you know, we had, we had some really good success over uh, the last year or two that I was there, bringing in people who were earlier in their careers and, and, and having less experience than I really thought would be useful, right? You know, as a hiring manager, you always want someone, like you were saying, who can, you know, hit the ground running and start producing immediately, right? And the truth is, I mean, almost no one's going to be that. Even people, even people with, you know, 10 plus years of experience as senior developer, you know, or senior engineer on their resume for the past three jobs, right? It's going to, it's going to take them weeks and sometimes months before they can get to a point where they're, uh, where they're positively contributing. And so we had some really good success getting, you know, people who were earlier in their careers, getting them to the point where, you know, they, they maybe can only do these five or 10 things, right? Cause that's all we, that's all they've been trained on so far, but they can do those things without breaking anything. And those things are teaching them more about the system and they're learning more and they're growing more, right? And it's taking those things off the plate of the more senior exactly. talent, which now gets to work on like more strategic long-term things instead of like, oh, I have to add another like domain to like these six different things so we can get traffic from it or prevent yep. traffic from it or whatever. Absolutely. It's interesting now, the place that, that I'm at now is a extremely early stage startup. There are four full-time people and one part-time, one intern. We don't have any of those guardrails. We don't have any of those systems in place. But what I would give for someone to have that in place so that we could bring in someone who is earlier in their career and be like, Here are, here's one of the 150 things on my to-do list. Just do that one. And I won't have to worry about it anymore. I feel like a role I've settled in and whenever we did add people to our like teams that I've been on in any company, I would ask them to do the same thing. If I, I would say, okay, you are at this rare spot that is highly temporary. You don't know what you're doing and I don't know what I am assuming about knowledge. So every time you do a task, please write it down. And like, I've, I've even handed off like copy and paste, like here's your template for like this new thing. And like heading one is overall goal. And then like reasons and like link tickets or Jira cards or like customer support issues or whatever. And then just like start mashing the anarchy and writing notes as you go. And then at the end, if that becomes the raw material that can then be like built into a bit of a run book. And then 
I'll have that person hand it off to someone else, the next person that starts and be like, okay, do this again, find gaps, use that to refine this knowledge. And then by the time that's happened twice, you have a document you can hand to someone who's almost like probably like never interacted with the system before. And they're able to like confidently execute with understanding and like checking. You can be like, okay, now make sure like go over here, check this other environment and make sure that the thing you did here like percolated that way. And here's how to verify. And if so, come back. And if not, you know, raise your hand in the Slack room or whatever. Like you can just like hand people tutorials and they're like doing business relevant work, learning their own skills and it's like becoming a more and more refined piece of documentation. But only a person that's new to the team can do that. Because if you sat down and tried to write that document, you're like, oh, yeah, we connect to this thing. And then we run this script and we do this. And you're like, there's like so many skilled expert judgments where you're like, oh, if it takes too long for the like terminal prompt to come back. I know that something has gone wrong. You're never going to write that down because you like, you know, maybe it took eight seconds to run a query and you expected it to take a quarter of a second. So it's, a, you know, yeah. two orders of magnitude off, but. Right. Yeah. I'm not going to, I'm not going to write down, right. Make sure you're connecting to the VPN or this particular VPN. You're just going to assume that you know that because I, I knew it and didn't occur to me to write it down. Yeah. I love this topic because I think there's business value here at every domain, like a, a new manager, for instance, on a team, they want to make a name for themselves, they can like make waves in the organization by encouraging this kind of behavior. And then after a year, they're like, yep, here's our like 11 runbooks that are like, we hand off to new teams. And they start hearing like, oh, why is it every time you hire a new employee, like you can get more junior than the rest of us, and they become more experienced than anyone else expects. Yeah, it can be not scary, it can be really effective this kind of thinking applied to teams at the right level. And then that's how you build high performing teams. And, and then maybe other teams start poaching your employees, but like, that's cool. Now they're growing. Like, how, how do you think it feels to be in that position of like, Oh, I've been working in this job for a year. I didn't think I was going to be very good. And now that team over there wants me because of like these skills that I have. The team that can do that reliably is almost like gifting the rest of the company, these employees and these employees careers are like growing quickly because they're getting their skills. They're getting exposure to lots of different topics and solving novel business problems and kind of like collaborating and reaching across business units. Like this is something that really hit me there. Like when you're describing this hypothetical journey, one of the things that you said was, you know, how do you think? they would feel talking about the employee who is getting poached or moving on to bigger and better things. And I really like approaching management from that perspective, you know, ra rather than solely focusing on what's best for the company, what's best for the you know, business group or whatever, you know, whatever your kind of sphere of, of locality is. Uh, because I find in uh, a lot of cases, if you try hard enough, you can, find ways to do for the employees and give them the best outcome and have that also be in line with what is best for the business group or the organization. And that's something that I kind of ground my gears on a little bit when I first started entering management because I, I, <laughs> I felt more like labor than the man, you know what I mean? But yet here I was in a position where I wasn't labor anymore, right? Or at least you know, not the same kind. I found that when I approach decisions and interactions with the team from a place of caring and kindness and love, I would always tell people would ask me what it was like being a, being a manager, right? And I was like, well, it's it's pretty easy for me 
uh, because I, I just try to love my team as much as possible. And the right decisions tend to kind of fall out from there. Not always the case, you know, but it's, uh, and I, le- I learned that kind of the hard way, but I thought it was a really good place to start from. I'm nodding along over here like, yeah, like I have nothing to add, like approach management from a position of like caring for your team. And it's in America in the 21st century, like corporate values based on love that doesn't actually like (laughs) you're not going to have your like notice to your shareholders be like, we've taught our managers to be more loving. And that's why our stock has outperformed, you know, our cohort of competition companies. But I think like there's probably a paper that is being drafted right now by some sociologist or like MBA person that's like the effects of and then they're going to use a bunch of fancy words that, you know, all boiled down to like loving behaviors towards your team, like the effects on that on like at the end of the day, stock value or and I don't even like stock value as like a metric of success because like what is money and all of that stuff. But I'm still confident. I've talked to people. I'm like, oh, yeah, by being kind to my team, we will absolutely crush any other metric of success whatever metric you want to like evaluate us on error rate or recovery rate or sprint time or like the number of times you know all of these things like the team that is kind in a very like sometimes painful way that's why it's easy for teams to say like we're psychologically safe but then they don't actually become psychologically safe because it's a lot easier to like say the thing than it is to do the thing but the teams that do the thing will always be vastly better. Or maybe it's, you know, as a manager, like your role is to enforce the company's will like kind of down below you. So there's some times where you're like, well, this probably isn't going to be any of ours long-term spot. So I'm going to treat you as well as I can. And then we're all going to like, at some point, it's a small tech world. Like we're all going to might end up on the same team again, or some of us, or like, you'll make referrals or I'll help you or whatever. Like it all just works out. And if heaven forbid you leave the company that's kind of toxic, great, so be it. Like that is a further underscoring the truth of what you're saying, which is like by treating everyone well, if that means we get out of companies that don't treat their employees well, that's a good outcome. A fun story. Uh, there is a paper, uh, it's actually pretty old now. It was published, I think in 92. And the title is On the Effects of Meaningfulness, Safety, and Resources in the Engagement of the Human Spirit at Work. And it is a uh, quantitative study following up on an earlier paper that created this model that the engagement of the human spirit at work, which is basically how much do I like going to work? Mm. Uh, what is my quality of work life? Like, how um, is my soul? Like, it's a very yeah. like uncomfortably like. So engagement of the thing. human spirit is a, is a pretty, pretty hand wavy thing to be quantifying in an academic paper. But there are three factors that were originally identified. Uh, the first is the meaningfulness of roles and tasks. The second is psychological safety. And the third is, is access to psychological and emotional resources. And what this paper did was it said, we're going to do a survey of one of those, uh, you know, five point strongly disagree, strongly agree surveys on a bunch of questions that each will factor into a weighting for these three factors to see how much these three factors affect the engagement of the human spirit at work. And so among the questions that are listed in at the end of the paper are things that have to do with how much do you like your boss? How much do you trust your coworkers? And so what they've found is that you, that according to the paper, you can't actually tell which of those things are the most important. And it turns out the psychological safety is very important. And then engagement or the access to resources is like, how exhausted am I at the end of my workday? Do I wake up in the morning ready to go to work? You know, 
do I feel nauseous Sunday night thinking about the coming work week? Uh, yeah. Sunday scaries. Yeah. And so this has been studied extensively already. And when you see engagement surveys at work, they are generally some like 20 degrees of telephone game of this work. Mm-hmm. But I... it's interesting that like the, the original, some of the original work on why work, how to make work not suck says make the work meaningful, make people feel safe to take interpersonal risks and make sure that they have access to emotional and psychological resources. Make sure they're not exhausted. Make sure they're not emotionally drained. I couldn't agree. I Googled it, found it, and then uh, using a tool that sign sounds like SciHub, uh, you're, I was able to yeah. get the paper. I wanted to mention of like all of this is kind of like hand wavy and feels nice. Like the people that end up on these teams are lucky. Like, you know, teams where there's the manager has read this paper or is amenable to the ideas of like psychological conditions and meaningfulness, safety and availability and the engagement of the humans. Like that sounds like a great thing. What I have been advocating for people, like if there's a dev team manager or a team lead or even like a quote unquote line level engineer, I bet that if they they could take their current salary and imagine making 30 percent more or 40 percent more. And if they figure out ways to roll this kind of thinking into their work, either their current job or their next one will result in substantial improvements because teams that are this kind degree of health do consequentially like more effective and more performative, they work better. So if you can, if you want to like improve your own work condition rather than going necessarily learning like another programming language or, you know, just hitting the job search really hard. I think that there's very real monetary value that comes from implementing this kind of thinking, or at least trying to implement because there are companies that want these kinds of people. And there are people that want to be at these kinds of companies. And if they can find each other, I think it would be good for everybody. You know, also do it because you have an obligation as a human being to reduce suffering when you have the ability. Um, but yeah. yeah, you can also make more money. Yeah, it, uh, it sounds like the, the capitalist pigs were in our hearts all along, right? It's that. It's I, I gave a talk a while back that talked about, like, why should you be empathetic towards the other business units and trying to, like, accomplish your own goals? And it's not just, like, you're going to be more successful, but you actually, like, solve greater problems by bringing kindness and generosity to work. So you the first order of value is just the being kinder to your people. But eventually that enables you to like work on more interesting problems. Cause like more interesting problems to most people that have like unhardened souls is like helping people. Like, so if we, if we can help more people, then we feel more fulfilled. And at the end of the day, that leads to other good things. However, we define it. Sometimes people aren't interested in more money. They want more autonomy or I'd say usually people like there's a, you know, what is it? $75,000 a year and like additional happiness doesn't correlate with additional income. So once you're like covering your like minimum conditions of shelter and roof and whatever, I think tremendous good comes across any dimension that is meaningful to you of like just trying to like care for the people that are your, you have responsibility to. And they have responsibility towards you. I think that's a, a good note to end on. Uh, let's do reflections, if that's cool with everyone. So I've got a reflection that I wanted to mention, a couple references that I think folks would find helpful after this discussion. The reflection is that in Richard Cook's How Complex Systems Fail, 
like Josh pointed out, one of the points is that operators are always gambling. Operators are always taking risks. And psychological safety is often defined as the ability to take interpersonal risks. And so that's the connection between psychological safety and the ability to respond to failure. That's why it's so important. Uh, So I've got some, some references. You mentioned tacit knowledge earlier, Josh, that originally comes from work from Gene Lave in the eighties, probably the, like the most comprehensive work there is uh, cognition and practice. And then there's also a really good book by Schoen called the reflective practitioner, how professionals think in action. I think I'll go, I'll go next. This gave me a lot of stuff, a, a lot of uh, things to reflect on, but I think the one that is, uh, is kind of sticking with me the most is how to properly build systems and teams that are friendly to lesser experienced individuals to interact with as a way to help bring up folks who are earlier in their careers, folks who are coming from code schools, those folks who are coming from other industries as we, for any, for any number of reasons, not the least of which being that there's a need for uh, additional folks in the industry, right? And there's this kind of large untapped, mostly or partially untapped pool of resources. And, and specifically for me, how does one do that at, let's say like an early stage startup where the traditional thoughts are that you bring in a very small team of skilled, tenured, experienced folks and have them kind of lay the groundwork for stuff. And then once once you get past a certain stage, that's when you can start doing these kinds of things. But thinking about ways to introduce people earlier in their careers to the early stage startup while also making it a safe and productive environment for them and not setting them up to fail uh, is something that I want to spend more time thinking about. So I think there's uh, there's some interesting stuff there. Yeah, I, I like both of those a lot. They both were, I was like, what do I want to, I wanted to reference complex systems. I wanted to reference that. But Mondo, my reflection is going to be your team's experience of either meatballs or like, a little bit of a pour one out at the end of the workday mm-hmm. in commemoration of something. I think that I love traditions and rituals around things. Like even if it's, it could be the smallest, like that's not a real tradition. That's not a real ritual. And I'll be like, oh, contraire. Like I've made it one because I do it when this thing happens. I think something like that speaks so strongly to that psychological safety, which ties in well to the like complex system safety that you mentioned, Rain, of like psychological safety allows like experimentation kind of at the edges of the the sharp ends, wherever those are. So I, if I ever lead a team, I will be trying to do something similar of like, when this thing happens, we're just going to go order food from meatballs from down the street. Or like I, w- I live in Golden, there's a really good Himalayan food place. Maybe we'd all get non from there and eat that in commemoration of a production outage. But I, I think whoever set that up and started that tradition has gifted so many people such a kindness because it relieves the nonstop pressure of failure. Like, because if I make a mistake, I know that there's a system for like bringing us all back into like unity and health. And then when I when I do make a mistake, that thing happens. It's like wearing a seatbelt and having an airbag. If a small car accident could be instantly fatal, I might drive in a way that would induce more car accidents. But because there's protective systems, that actually reduces the likelihood of them ever having to be used. So I love that 
tradition and I'm going to use it. That's awesome, man. Did y'all, have y'all ever seen the Disney cartoon? I think it was Disney. Meet the Robinsons. It was for, I, I want to say it's from like the early 2000s, but it's, uh, it's about this, this kid who, there's part of the movie where this kid ends up in this, I don't even know, it's like, like, like a family compound almost, right? And there's this huge family, like extended brothers and aunts and cousins and grandparents and stuff. And the patriarch of the family is, uh, he's like this, this inventor, you know, kind of mad genius, almost like a, um, like a Steve Jobs kind of character, right? And the kid does a thing and can't remember if it was like a science experiment or what, but he does, he does this thing to kind of, sh- you know, try and show off to the whole family uh, and then fails. And the kid's all embarrassed, right? Because like, you know, the thing blows up or something and everyone's just kind of sitting there staring at this cloud of smoke. And you can see the kid's face drop, right? And the music comes in and it's all sad. And then everyone stands up and cheers and they throw him this huge party. And he's like, what is going on? And they're like, well, you failed. That's fantastic. Like you can't learn anything when you succeed, right? You only learn when you fail. So now you know not to do that again. Now we can move on to the next thing. But if it works, you, you know, you would have just known that works. And like that's that's always stuck with me. And it, it, it's a it's a scene that always comes comes to mind whenever you know I talk or whenever people are talking about team interactions around outages or mistakes or failures. I mean, it's a cartoon. But, you know, it's something that I, yeah, I always kind of strive for in like a group dynamic, right? Okay, well, you know, no one's dead. No one, you know, like then, you know, if if the stakes aren't that high, which they almost never are, then yeah, we can, we can learn from this. And and, and that's, and that's great. One of the, yes, we're, we're like basically done. Uh, but I just had a thought. Uh, so one of the reasons that I've sort of stopped using psychological safety as an explanatory device is that it's not one in that it's a latent indicator. It's a measurement of the output of a system of social relationships, and individual behaviors, right? And that means that it can tell you whether you have it, but if you don't have it, it can't tell you how to get it. And what I'm interested in is how to get it. Right. Um, this is like measuring, you know, fatalities on the highway won't tell you that, oh, what you needed were seatbelts, you know, they just tell you whether seatbelts work once you figure out to try seatbelts. And so what I'm interested in are what are the conditions and the ways of relating and behaving that lead to psychological safety. And I think it has a lot to do with things like how we process blame, which is why I gave a talk on that. Yeah. Yeah. Something that I feel correlates strongly with that is being able to ask questions about things that you're working on or whatever, and something as simple as uh, making it clear to the to the group that you know RTFM style answers aren't acceptable, or uh, answers where people say you know oh my god I can't believe you don't know that or you know stuff like that, and making sure that it is communicated clearly that that's not what we do as a team because when you're willing to ask those kinds you know when you feel comfortable enough to ask questions that maybe you personally feel like you should already know right and you're kind of a little embarrassed to be asking this question when you're at that point but it's again rain it's kind of like what you're saying right like you know when you're at that point you know that there is a level of emotional safety there but that's not how you get it you know what i mean it's good to know whether you're getting there, right? Yes. So it's useful. It's a useful thing to measure, but it won't tell you what to do next to try to get there. Right. Sure. It'd be nice if there was a checklist. <laughs> do these 12 things 
and ensure the emotional safety of your team. I feel like there is like the how complex systems fail and that kind of thing. It's not quite a checklist, but it's like principles of like mm-hmm. you don't get to worry to say that you're like doing a dent on psychological safety because that's a lagging indicator, not a leading one until you can point to ways that your team has processed shame and guilt in a way that indicates like an understanding of how complex systems fail and like blame being distributed and stuff. Like there could be kind of like gatekeeping functions where you don't get to move to step two until you've solved like step one. But those are hard things. I think a lot of people can't solve. It is larger than any single person in a lot of organizations to create like psychological safety. You might be like, oh, even the, or like create conditions where it can flourish. Like even CEOs, CEOs are extremely constrained. They don't have options. Yes, be more okay with taking risks now, please. Right. And we fired the last three people that acted like they were okay with taking risks. So good luck. I think a lot of, I don't know. I don't know. I feel like the places that can do this will naturally like sift to the, like bubble to the top of their respective industries. And then it'll, it's not going to be like, everyone is going to do this. It's going to be like a natural selection process. The people that do it will win and others will kind of cycle back through until they end up in a place where that is the case. Cause the, place that encourages psychological safety could handle hiring someone that doesn't have experience with that. And they could teach them the things. And then that person can move on and go like kind of spread that knowledge on a future team. Like now we've all benefited from the tradition of eating meatballs when there's a failure. That can't be undone. I can't undo that knowledge. So in a way, like that person has like pushed their vision out into the world in a way that can never be pushed back against. By the way, for those those who are from Austin or familiar with it, uh, we would get those meatball subs from Home Slice, which is traditionally known for their uh, like New York style pizza. But their meatball subs, oh man, there's nothing better after you uh, destroy a Kubernetes cluster than uh, a <laughs> meatball sub from there. That makes me hungry for lunch. This has been like my my first time on a podcast, and I've been listening to y'all for a long time. So I feel like I'm in this rarefied air that I don't belong of getting to be with like smart, competent people. So I, this has been just a delight of a time for me, and I'm very thankful just that both of y'all have taken time out of your day. On, I just want to make sure you both know I'm very thankful for like your time and like eager, just like rolling with conversation. Like this was a blast. I, I don't know. I'm sure people. I don't know how it could go poorly because it seems so effortless and easy, which indicates systems in place that like consistently guarantee certain results of like when we have guests we help them feel successful because we're the experts and they don't have to be so bring that whole arrow pointing back to the beginning i see what you did there that was nice (laughs) yeah it's been a real lot to have you on yeah josh thanks thanks so much man yeah it's been really really good